let's uh, pray together before we look into this lengthy, uh, interesting passage of Scripture. Father, we bow before you. Uh, we thank you that your word constantly is pointing us to Christ. It is revealing yourself to us, not just facts, not just of um, encounters that people have. It happened long ago, but Lord, we know that this is revealing to us you at work. We pray that we might therefore be more confident of the fact that you are at work even now using our lives for your glory. And so, Lord, teach us, we pray, from this passage, uh, and that we might understand more of the supremacy of your work in expanding your church. For your glory, we pray. Amen. I was privileged to have, as a freshman in college, an opportunity to go to Europe for a study tour. And we went to all sorts of countries and saw an incredible number of historic and uh, interesting sites. One of them was we were in Rome. We visited St. Peter's Basilica. And I'll, I still can remember walking into this massive, I mean, just huge, gigantic building and being impressed with, sadly, the number of people there who were uh, making such a big deal over a particular statue. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the other thing was to realize the vast sums of money it took to build this kind of cathedral and remember that that's really what got the Reformation going when they were trying to collect money for various indulgences. But anyway, it took about 100 years to build this thing. And uh, one image that lingers in my mind is a particular site in which there's a, a bronze statue of Peter. And he's seated in this chair. And one foot is extended more than the other in this. It's, in, it's a little elevated. It's about this height uh, is the bottom of the statue. And, and he's sitting up here. And uh, his right foot that's extended out has a lighter color than the rest of the statue. And the reason for that is there's so many of the pilgrims who are there put their hand on his foot or lean over and kiss his foot. And they make such a big deal over, obviously, Peter. And the Catholic Church, of course, teaches that Peter is the first bishop of Rome. More than that, they would claim that he was the first pope of this long line of popes, and they would claim that it goes back to Peter and has continued on since then what they call apostolic succession. And so when you go there, you say to yourself, is it any wonder, if they believe this is true of Peter, is it any wonder that, that uh, the largest basilica in the world is named St. Peter? They also claim, of course, that supposedly he's buried uh, somewhere underneath uh, the altar in that particular building. But I find it interesting as you read the scriptures to contrast what is claimed about Peter and how he depicts himself. Because we read in the Bible in the, in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. He doesn't call himself the bishop. He doesn't call himself the one who is the pope. He says, I'm a fellow elder. And it was Peter who was rebuked by the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, for his uh, problem, he's going to so, sort of got over the problem here in, in, in Acts 10, but he's going to go revert back to this problem about eating with people who are Gentiles. He was rebuked. And we're going to see here in this text, I find it interesting that in chapter 10 of Acts, look at 25 and 26. 
I know I'm jumping way ahead in the story here, but just as far as our introduction, it's Peter who has a man who is a soldier, a, a man who has 100 people under him in the Roman army, bows down before Peter. He, he, he is prostrate before him, showing him extreme honor and humbling himself before Peter. And what does Peter say? Peter says, listen, get up. I'm just an ordinary human being. Indeed, it is true that Peter was, yes, a godly leader in the church, no question, but he was the first to admit that he was a fallible mortal. It's true that Jesus did give to Peter the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16. That is true. But those metaphorical keys were to be given to him as the one apostle who was to open the door for the gospel to the Jews and to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. He did the first on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And now here in this text in Acts chapter 10, it is Peter who now is going to use that key and open the door, as we will see actually next week, uh, opening the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, although Peter is one of the primary characters in this section of Acts 10, I think Luke is emphasizing that there is a, a number of characters that are taking uh, part in this particular uh, incident, but this is at the one of the most critical moments of change in the history of the church. It is at this moment, I believe, Luke is trying to help us see the most significant person at, involved in this particular event, set of events, is God himself. It is God who is at work here in this chapter 10 of Acts in the, in the account of Peter going from Joppa up to Caesarea. And it is God who is supreme in expanding his church. That's the main point of my sermon today. It is God who is actively involved in directing and intersecting the lives of his people and other people who are not his people yet so that the gospel may further expand in its effect, in its changing of lives, in its building of the church so that the boundaries of those who are in the church would move further and further out so that the church includes more and more people, not just with the people who are like Peter, who have a similar background, similar culture, similar race, similar ethnic uh, similarities. No, Jesus said he's going to build his church, and this and other New Testament texts show that he built his church at this critical junction according to three things. Through God's orchestration, God's will, and God's way. God's orchestration, God's will, and God's way. First of all, think about God and his orchestrating of these events. We are thinking now about the mystery of God's sovereignty. When you look over this text of Scripture, along with comparing what happens in chapter 11 of Acts and also chapter 15 of Acts, you can't help but conclude that it is God who is orchestrating the events that take place in Joppa and Caesarea. It starts off, chapter 10, did you notice that? There's a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius. He goes on to describe Cornelius. Why Cornelius? How is it that this, this particular man and not somebody else, but it's Cornelius, he's in Caesarea, which is a very much a city that was built up by Herod the Great. He went in and invested huge amounts of money, built it up with this fancy harbor, 
It's a very significant Roman city, and it's a very modern city. And so here's this Roman soldier assigned there named, named uh, Cornelius. And God chooses sovereignly to take Cornelius to meet and intersect with Peter, not just any apostle, but Peter the apostle, who's there in Joppa, in order to have Cornelius evangelized and that he might fully know Jesus Christ by faith. We're introduced to this commendable Roman soldier. If you look at him, you think, well, it's quite an introduction about what he's like. He's a man who's described as devout. Now, that, that ought to cause us to back up just a second and say, whoa, that's not a typical description of a Roman soldier by a Jew in that first century time. Believe me, most Jewish people had a disdain for almost all of the Roman soldiers that they interacted with. But this particular Roman soldier was not like all. He was a devout man, a man who feared God with all his household, who was regularly involved in prayer, and who also gave money to the needy folks around there and the different Jews that he knew. Well, here's this man named Cornelius, and an angel appears to him. Now, did Cornelius bring that about? No, this is God choosing to send this angel to instruct Cornelius to send some men over there to Joppa, which is really going down south along the edge there of the Mediterranean Sea. And he wants those men to meet up with this man named Peter. So what does Cornelius do? Like a good soldier, he takes the commands he was given and he says, all right, you, you, and you, go. And this is the directions. You're to go there to Joppa, you're to find this guy named Peter. Meanwhile, God is preparing Cornelius to be a regenerated recipient of the gospel. God is at work. He's preparing this recipient of the gospel. Secondly, we read in the text there that we explicitly mentions that God is preparing the messenger, that is Peter. It is Peter who, enjoying this great view of the Mediterranean Sea, He's got a great place to hang out. His, this house is right on the ocean. I'm sure he's got a nice breeze coming off there. And if you've ever been in a place where you have a beautiful view of water, it's a place that you could spend quite a long time. And so he's upstairs. He's on the, the ceiling, off, I mean, on the, uh, the uh, roof of this particular home. And it's about lunchtime, and he falls into a trance at the beginning time of his prayer time. And what does he see? He sees this tarp coming down out of heaven with the corners pulled up with things inside. It comes down out of heaven. It opens up. And here you see all of these various animals and birds and beasts. And the command is given to him by God to sacrifice them or to kill them all and to begin eating. And Peter, as a a very faithful Jew, had been following food regulations that had been spelled out from places like Leviticus chapter 11 and many other places in the Torah. And that was, he was told that he was forbidden to eat certain kinds of food that they were deemed unclean or profane. Now, what was the reason for all these regulations? Some people have said, well, it was designed to keep you healthy. So they were trying not to eat certain kinds of food for those reasons. There may be some truth to that, but obviously that's not the complete truth because we're told in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18, the purpose of these prohibitions regarding certain kinds of food was to ensure 
that God's chosen people would remain distinct, would remain separate from the pagan nations of the world. God did not want them to sit down and enjoy meals together and become one with them in all of their practices and all of their celebrations. He's trying to keep them as those who are indeed distinct. So Peter had had that ingrained into him since childhood. He sees this vision and he doesn't readily accept it. As a matter of fact, it's repeated how many times? Three times. Not once, not twice. Three times we're going to show you the same thing. And what was God doing here? God is preparing Peter. He's preparing the one who is the messenger to bring the gospel into the home of a Gentile named Cornelius. He is encouraging at some point Peter to let go of all the ways that he's been taught these particular patterns and regulations to disregard all those hospitality barriers. He's saying, lay those aside. It's okay now to go and have dinner with someone who's a Gentile. It's okay to intermingle with these people. Why? One reason I believe the difference is because the Holy Spirit is now in the people of God. And he's the one who will help them remain distinct and remain holy before God. It's not just the food and avoiding things on the outside. Well, what happens next is a very interesting example of divine timing. We've got Peter on the roof. He's seen this vision. You've got these people being sent from Cornelius in response to the vision he received. And what happens is that right at the time that Peter has seen that vision the third time, we have a knock at the door. Now, that is not an accident. That is not some sort of random event, and somehow these two things came together. At the exact moment that Peter has seen this vision, the three folks who come from Cornelius' home up in Caesarea knock on the door where he's staying, and the Spirit of God obviously is directing Peter to stop all of this contemplating of this vision and get downstairs and meet these three people. And look at verse 19. Those Gentile messengers who were knocking at the door were sent and directed by God. It says there, I myself have sent them. I myself have sent them. You see, God divinely ordains this momentous encounter between two people, two people groups, if you will. He's bringing together people that would never, ever have anything in common with each other, who would never sit down and have each other in their homes. He is now beginning to push, push back all of these particular restrictions, and now he is ordaining that they come together so that gospel ministry would take place among the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles can be brought into the church. This is God at work. God has a plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation cannot be thwarted. God prepares those who are the receivers of the gospel. And it is God who is also the one who prepares the messengers who bring the message of the gospel. And I would dare say the majority of us here today probably, I'm not sure, but I'm just guessing now, would probably see ourselves as Gentiles. We are here today because God not only instructed his disciples to be gospel witnesses to the remotest part of the earth, that's true, but he also superintended, 
God also guided, God also coordinated all these different encounters so that the gospel continued to go outward and expanding farther and farther, including people like you and me. And God's goal was that the outsiders become equal members incorporated into the body of Christ, into the church. And God continues to do this. He does it in amazing ways. I keep reading of what's going on in our world. We see so many displaced people, people who don't have their homeland any longer to live there. They're living now somewhere else. And in all the displacing of these thousands of people from their homelands, due to all sorts of terror threats and violence and wars, at the same time, many of these people are having visions of Jesus. They are hearing through their dreams and through various forms of visions. I don't understand it all, but this is what I'm hearing and this is what I'm reading. Preparing them for the gospel messengers who will come across their path, explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, and people are coming to Christ. It's happening in our day as well. And I would dare say it happens in the everyday life of ordinary people like you and me. When God is preparing, we don't know it, but there's all, he's been at work in a person's life. He then begins to work in our life where we begin to get so excited about the gospel that we find opportunities to interact with unsaved people. And next thing you know, God is at work expanding the kingdom of God through people, ordinary people like you and me. But it's God at work. God prepares the gospel recipients. He prepares the gospel proclaimers, and he prepares those gospel encounters. It is God who is at work in expanding his church. Thank God that's true, my friend. Otherwise, it's all up to you and me. And that's not the case. So that's God orchestrating. Second thing we learn in this text is that we see God's will at work here. God's will. And when that will is revealed to Peter in this vision, when he's told to kill and eat both the clean and unclean animals, notice the reaction that Peter is left with. And let's give him some slack here. I think we all would be scratching our head on this one if we were in his shoes. Verse 17. And there we read, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, he has these people right now right in front of him. So he is bewildered, he is perplexed, and the thought of no longer following these dietary regulations that marked off the Jewish people as distinct from all of these other nations was absolutely revolutionary. It was radical. And so he's like, what? What? You want me to do what? And look at his reaction. When he's told that there's all of these barriers are going to be broken down between the Jew and the Gentile, He's basically now beginning to understand. He doesn't see it fully. But what God is going to do here is God is going to break down the, two divide, the wall between two dividing groups of people, Jews and non-Jews, and he's now going to bring them into one new man in the church. And Peter objects and says, I'm sorry, verse 14. He says, By no means, Lord. Or another way to translate that. Never, Lord, never, 
Lord. Do you see a problem with that? By no means, Lord. And again, I don't want to minimize this radical change that's been presented to Peter, but I want us to consider how Peter responded when he's responding to the one who is his Lord, his master, his king, the one who has called him, who has all the authority in the universe. This is not the first time we have this kind of reaction out of Peter because Peter is just like you and me, right? We all have different ways of reacting when God tells us to do something. And so Peter, when he is being asked, who is Jesus? He gives the correct answer about who's Jesus. In Matthew 16, he answers that he is the true Messiah. And then Jesus says, okay, yes, that's true. That's a correct answer. And he says, and listen here, I'm going to tell you something else about this Messiah. He says, that Messiah, I, Messiah, am going to be suffering at the hands of, this, of those religious leaders here. I'm going to be put to death, and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. Now, that's not according to what Peter had understood the Messiah to do or be. And so he says in Matthew 16, 22, God forbid it, Lord. Or he says, heaven forbid, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So what does Jesus say? <laughs> Jesus is so patient with him as he is patient with us. He corrects him. He reminds him, hey, listen, Peter, your reaction is based on your calculating what makes sense to you, but you've lost sight of what is my agenda, what is God's greater agenda here, and to, for God's plans, and so therefore you're answering based on what your plans and your agenda is and what makes sense to you. Now I just need to stop for a second and just acknowledge that the good news in this passage is that after repeating the commandment, three times. Peter did move forward. That's an amazing work of grace in his life. It's a reminder that not only did Peter fail three times in, you know, saying, I don't know who Jesus is, right? He, he uh, denied him three times. But here's three times of Peter saying, nope, that's not going to happen. Nope, Lord, that's not going to happen. Nope, Lord, that's not going to happen. But then after the third time, finally he does begin to say what? It's going to happen, Lord. I guess it's going to happen with me involved. And so he finally realizes and accepts the fact that his position before God is not now based on him keeping all of these regulations that he has to somehow become a person who is uh, doing all the right thing. His security, his acceptance before God is based on what Jesus did for him. And Jesus became the one who was defiled so that we might be what? Those who live in the cleansing power of his blood. And therefore we can take risks. We don't have to be those who are shielding ourselves and trying to remain clean and avoiding all these things that are unclean. It's the gospel that began to free him up to move forward. If God is going to use us as evangelists and disciplers, how are we going to deal with those situations that become difficult for us sometimes when we're asked to do things that don't make sense to us? And I'm convinced that one of the ways is that 
we have to remember who we are. We have to remember whose we are. And we have to remember who has all the authority and the one to whom we are to respond to and to yield to. It is Jesus Christ. And we belong to him as his children. Therefore, as we meditate on the scriptures, as we think about what God's agenda is and surrender our lives to Christ again and again, day by day, we may find some areas of our lives that we are living that are somewhat defying our master. That we might need to have him remind us again and again that we need to not be caught saying, never, Lord. Those words just don't go together. And so we need to trust in the promises of the gospel and learn to submit to the will of our master. Here's an interesting question Jesus asks when it comes to those of us who claim him as Lord. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus asked the question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? So it needs to be more than just saying Christ is our Lord. There comes the challenge for us to learn to bend our will to his will. And I'll be honest, God's will often seems contrary to human logic. Sometimes it doesn't add up to make a lot of sense from the human perspective of things. Because the Bible says that we gain life when we lay down our lives. That the way down is the way up. The Bible says that when we're weak, then we're strong. I wonder if there's some area of your life where you have been saying to the Lord recently, never, Lord. Or maybe you've been saying, not now, Lord. Or you've been saying, I don't want to do that, Lord. Maybe it has to do with your tithing and your giving and your stewardship of the and monies entrusted to you, to you by God. Maybe it's the fact that you need to tell the truth about something and you've been sort of avoiding having to really deal with the truth and you've been sort of covering it up and going along with things and you need to be honest and acknowledge that. It, it could be the fact that God's been prompting you to share your testimony or to talk more about Christ with that person you've been getting to know who's an unbeliever and you've never really told your story about how Christ has changed your life and you're saying, mm, no, Lord. And perhaps the Lord, through this gospel, is trying to help you realize that obeying Christ can be done because Christ never asks us to do anything that will destroy us. He asks only to do that which is for our good and for his glory. And I wonder if you're willing to submit to God's ways instead of rationalizing and thinking of reasons that you compromise with sin sometimes is because you wonder if you can really trust Jesus. Does he really know what he's doing? Let me point out a helpful verse to you, perhaps, that one of the things that sometimes we become slack in this area of finding ourselves not willing to do what our master is urging us to do. James 1.21, I think, has such good, helpful counsel here for dealing with our hearts. Because let's say we all need help in this area, don't we? We all need to be reminded in the word 
who we are in Christ, who Christ is and what he's done for us, and why it is so important to fill our minds with the truth of God's word. He says in James 1.21, we're to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. In other words, he's saying we're to have a teachable, yielded spirit is so important when we read the Word of God. Rather than disputing with God, rather than resisting the, the Word that God calls us to follow and to perform, we're to yield ourselves to the directives of our Master. Just like Cornelius is yielding himself to, well, he would yield himself to the, his commander in the Roman army. You learn to submit to those who have higher rank over you. You don't ask questions. You don't you don't protest. You, you don't give 16 reasons why I'm not going to do that. You just do what you're told to do. And so Cornelius, interestingly enough, we'll find here in this text, ends up being the kind of person you sense it. In verse 33, I don't know if you caught that in reading through this whole text here, but finally when Peter arrives on the scene, he's at his house. Now he's got all these people in his household, which I guess are people that work for him and work with him and plus his family and everybody else who's sort of depending on this guy. He's sort of uh, the one that they're directly or indirectly connected to. They're all sitting around waiting to hear what it is they need to do, what it is that God wants them to learn and to be told. And so they have a heart that's willing to do whatever he's asking. And may I just say here, I think that Peter needs the gospel as much as Cornelius. Peter needs to hear the gospel as much as Cornelius. Even though sometimes we are stubborn and we're willful and we're defiant of God at times, the same gospel that says, hey, we're forgiven, hey, you can learn to, to acknowledge that you were wrong there and, and come back to the Lord and say, you're right, Lord, I was, I was being stubborn and Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for helping me see that I was playing in such a silly role here because I thought I knew better than you do. Peter needs the gospel as much as Cornelius. And if you look at chapter 15, I don't have time to expand on this right now, and I'm sure I'll do so later, but when uh, Peter recounts what happens, happened now, uh, we're about to read about here in Caesarea, He's telling the gathered believers there and the various leaders of the church at that time, and they call the Jerusalem Council, uh, God has cleansed the hearts of these people by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? This is Acts 15, 10. Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. He's saved by grace, not by his performance. So I hope if you're a person who has a tendency to have a long list of exception clauses... Yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you ask me to do, except this and this and this and this and this and this. And I'm also not really excited about doing this, this, and this, and this. If you have that long list of exception clauses, or if you have all these conditional stipulations that you want to hold on to in case Jesus is going to ask you to give up some treasure that you have, or he asks you to do something that you dread doing, maybe you can say to the Lord, in light of what you laid aside, Lord Jesus, in order to save me, help me to be willing to lay aside whatever you're asking of me as my response of love to you.
Use me, Lord. Teach me to have a teachable, submissive heart before you. And remember this, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, and what did he say? Not my will, but yours will be done. Lord, teach us to have a heart like Christ. For his glory. Amen. Let's look at one more thing here. Point number three. By the way, point number two, I may not have given you the full outline there. Sorry. Uh, point number two, God's will, perplexity of obedience. There are times it just doesn't seem to make sense when we're asked to obey. And point number three is God's ways. And this has to do with verses 34 and 35. When it has to do with exclusivity of the gospel. Look at verse 34 and 35. Peter now begins to finally speak. He's made his way amazingly into this home of this Gentile. That's a huge deal. It takes so much grace for him to step in there and say, okay, I'm going to now have a heart that looks at these people and have compassion for them, and I don't care about all these regulations. I'm doing what you asked me to do, Lord Jesus. In verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him, God, and does what is right is welcome to God. Now, what did Peter not mean in this text? I want to make some clarifications here. Some people have read these verses and they understood Peter to say that people from any nation, from any background in the world, if they just fear God and whatever that means, if they do what they think is right, whatever that means, that somehow God will find acceptance for them somehow, someday. There are some who have interpreted this particular text. They zero on the words there, verse 35, they zero in on those words, welcomed to him or find that God somehow accepts people who have never heard of Jesus, but somehow they perform these commendable works. Some have read these words and they've gone further and they would insist that this text, according to Peter and his teaching, they would say that this text teaches that all religions lead to God. Now, those of us who uh, might find ourselves thinking that well, maybe that could be interpreted here. Or if you're tempted to think that that's what this text must be saying, many people who are leaning that direction, they struggle with the exclusivity of the gospel. They struggle with the fact that there's such a narrow way and they want to celebrate tolerance. And so they insist that God certainly cannot limit salvation to just one way. God certainly can't limit salvation to one Savior, to one gospel. Can he? People have tried over the years to broaden the way of salvation. So many have sought to widen the gate so that many, as many people as possible can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But may I remind you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate. This is Jesus speaking. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to what? destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Now that's not my words. Those are Jesus's words. You see, the gospel insists that Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, 
who died as a substitute for our sins on the cross and was raised to life for our justification is the only way to God. Period. All religions, with all these different roads, as they say, representing these various religions, all these different roads of religion, they do not lead to heaven. Jesus insisted that no one comes to the Father except through Him, John 14, 6. And we know in verses 34 and 35, when, when Peter is talking here now, introducing himself as opening comments to this very interested crowd that God has prepared there in Caesarea, we know that he is not going to teach that all religions lead to God. Why? Because Peter then goes on, we're not going to get into it this morning, he proceeds to preach Christ to Cornelius and his household. <laughs> if he was teaching that all roads lead to the top of the mountain to God, then why is he going to proclaim Christ? It doesn't make any sense. He's persuading these people to believe in Christ, whose life and death and resurrection are God's only remedy for ruined sinners like you and me. And may I remind you of one other text from Peter, his own words. If you are going to try to put these kinds of thoughts in Peter's mind, let me also remind those who want to broaden this to include everyone. Chapter 4, verse 12 of Acts is a very clear statement about the exclusivity of the gospel, where Peter now says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus alone. And we who live in an age of tolerance, we who live in an age of open-mindedness, we must never shy away from proclaiming the only provision for salvation for the religious and non-religious people in the world. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen. Now what did Paul, Peter mean then in verses 34 and 35? If that's what he did not mean, that is all roads lead to God, then all religious roads, what did he mean? Well, Peter was making this dramatic statement about the new blessings that accompany the new covenant. And what he's saying is that God does not show partiality on the basis of race. Cornelius had no reason at all to become a Jew in order to become acceptable before God. Being a Gentile is not a barrier to entering into the kingdom of God. Now let me use an illustration of what I'm saying. Many, many of us have been to theme parks where you pay an exorbitant amount of money to park, you pay an exorbitant amount of money to get in the door, you pay an exorbitant amount of money for food, but we have a great time over there, right? And so we go on these rides that scare the living daylights out of us, and we uh, go to the front of the line after you've waited about two hours to ride this ride, and you get there and it says, you must be taller than... 58 inches or whatever it is. And they have these certain heights that they have established. You must be taller than that to get on this ride. And if you're not that height, you can't ride on the ride. You say, well, I paid to get in here, man. Aren't you going to let me ride on everything? And the answer is no. They have certain regulations. In Christ's kingdom, there are no signs that say 
posted requiring that you have to look a certain way. There are no signs that say you have to have a certain IQ. You have to have a certain income level. You have to have a certain education level. You have to have a certain family ancestry and be connected to this person who's connected to this person who's connected to this person. And you've got to be related to somehow that family. There's no sign that says you have to be in a certain nationality or a certain class of people in order to gain entrance into the church of Jesus Christ. No matter what your looks, no matter what your smarts, no matter what your biological connections are, you have an invitation extended to all people that says, repent and believe on Christ and you shall be saved. And since this is true, therefore the church, and this is the whole point I believe of this text, the church, if because that's true, is to widely welcome all who turn in faith to Christ and who turn away from sin. We're to welcome them all. The church must be racially inclusive. The church must be socially inclusive. The church is to be economically inclusive. We're to be ethnically inclusive. And Peter's presence in this Roman centurion's home in Caesarea, a very Roman sophisticated city, was a statement about the gospel. That God receives all sorts of sinners. And every one of them is saved the same way. They are all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very powerful encounter that took place as the gospel moved forward, moved outward. We pray, Lord, that we might similarly gain a sense of excitement, realizing that we're not on our own when it comes to sharing our faith, that you are the God who prepares the recipient of the gospel. You're also the God who prepares the messenger and those who are the proclaimers of the gospel. So, Lord, prepare us, we pray. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us a sensitivity to, as to when the door is opening, that you're opening before us to share the good news of Christ. And we pray, Lord, you would help some of us to loosen up our circle of influence, that we might go farther and wider into this world, and that we might be used of you to go into places that normally we've been uncomfortable to go in, and that we might be more accepting of people who are different from us and welcoming of them as they embrace the gospel. And Lord, for some of us who struggle with what it means to truly submit to you and to yield ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of our life, I pray, Lord, that wherever there is an objection and there's somewhere in our lives in which we're saying, no, Lord, not now, Lord, no way, Lord, whatever we're saying to you, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, point us again to our Savior who gave his all, who did not hold back, who said, not my will but yours be done, the one who gave himself for us completely, entirely, unreservedly. Lord, may we again find the greatness of his love for us 
that which will bend our will to surrender and to yield and to submit ourselves to your will, no matter what, no matter the cost, no matter what we're asked to do. May you work that in us, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.